Speaking of David, we're going to be going through Psalm 73 today. It's not his psalm, it's his friend Asaph uh, wrote that psalm. But, you know, before we pray right now, what I want us to do is turn to your neighbors or someone sitting behind you or in front of you, and one of you share a time that was you felt when life was not fair, okay? So I'm going to give you all 30 seconds, so Turn to your neighbors and just share a time when you felt life just was not fair. Go ahead, guys. Take a minute. You know what's interesting is everyone had a story, right? Right? Everybody has a story about why life is not fair. And this psalm, Psalm 73, you could say is probably one of the most extreme examples of, of this kind of injustice that we might feel from time to time in life, this unfairness uh, and what Asaph went through. And what we're going to do is we're just going to go line by line, literally line by line, and just try to you know, pick apart the word of God and see what God has placed in there for us. So let's stand and let's pray and invite the Lord today. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we open up your word, that it would be you who would speak to us, God. It wouldn't be just us sitting here in our thoughts, God, just us trying to, you know, Take something away that I can apply to my life, which is good, God, but I pray that it would be you yourself. Open up our hearts, God. Let me speak as one who speaks oracles of God as you have commanded me, and I pray that you yourself would reveal your truth from your word. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Psalm 73. Again, this is written by Asaph. He was a chief musician. He was a leader uh, of the musicians during the time of David, and he wrote a couple of psalms himself. And this is one of his more famous ones. And we're going to start, if we can go to the next slide, verse 1, Psalm 73. Asaph says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So I love Asaph opens the psalm praising God, right? He's giving glory to God, declaring the goodness of God. And right after that, he contrasts God with his own self. He says, but, but, the keyword, but, as for me, I had almost stumbled. I had almost slipped. And he tells us the reason why he had stumbled or almost stumbled. It's because he was envious. He was jealous of the arrogant. He was jealous of sinners who live in unrepentant sin. He looked at their life and said, wow, their life is so much better than mine. So he opens up the psalm by summarizing what he's about to explain to us 
He talks about, and he's going to talk about the trial that he went through and the lessons that he learned. So read with me, next slide, verse 4. For they have no pangs, this is the death, the, the, the evildoers, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. You see, to Asaph in that moment, as he was going through this difficult time, it appeared to him that the wicked, they had it all. They, they, they had all the success, all the things that you could possibly ask for in life. They had it all. And you know what? We don't even need to take Asaph at his word, right? We see this happen in the world all the time. Just study history, right, with, with this, like, lens in mind. Like, all the people that we read about that prospered throughout the history of the world, most of them didn't love God. Most of them just lived in sin, loved their sin, didn't worship God, didn't pray to God, at least not actually in their hearts, and they prospered. If we study the, you know, get the list of, you know, the richest people in the world, right? The Forbes list. I haven't personally looked, but I'm pretty sure there's not going to be many born-again believers who are living for the glory of Jesus, if any, right? If any. I don't know. I haven't looked. But Asaph, seeing their prosperity, seeing how, how they have no pain until death, how they're living in such abundance, he, he falls into a bit of a dilemma, right? Because if you really think about it, like, man, my life is hard, but these people's lives, it's easy. But they're not living for God. They're not. How is it that people who do not love God and do not acknowledge God, do not live for God, how is it that they are so much better off than everyone else? In fact, this truth would be easier to swallow if, right, if everyone was just equal. The righteous and the evildoers, if everyone was just equal, that'd be easier, right? Okay, we're, we're all going through a hard time, but no. Some are, are having the time of their life, and you think, that's not fair. That's not fair. Their life is easy, their life is smooth, and it gets worse. Verse 6, if we can go to the next slide. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Not only are they prospering, but they're prideful as a result of their prosperity. The situation is going from bad to worse. The good things that the bad people are receiving... Not only do they not deserve those things, but those good things that they're receiving is actually making the bad people more bad, right? I'm using very simple terms here. It says pride is their necklace. They wear it. They show off their pride. They're not ashamed of the pride that lives in their heart. And we see that violence covers them with the garment, meaning they're hurting other people in the process of all of this. You think, this is not Fair. Verse 7, next slide. Their, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their tongues against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Notice this phrase. Their, their eyes swell out through fatness. That's not an insult. During most of the history of the world, the word fat was very positive. It meant, it meant you were wealthy enough to buy something extra to eat over and above the bare minimum that you need to survive. So he, he, 
What he's saying, if he was writing this in a modern language, he's saying they, these people, they drip money. They have so much wealth, they don't know what to do with it. Their eyes are dripping money, right? They're swelling out through fatness. They're extremely rich. Next slide, verse 10. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. These people, they reject God whether explicitly or implicitly, and they are so prosperous that they have caused themselves to believe that there will be no justice here on earth, that there will be no moral recompense for the evil that they do, that no one will ever hold them accountable. That's what the psalm, what Asaph is saying. They've, they've told themselves that. How can God know? Is there knowledge? They are free to do anything they want, always at ease, always increasing in riches. And so reading about all this can get a little depressing. You're like, that's just, uh, that's, you know, you'd think that, you know, someone steps out of line, someone starts doing something that's not fair, like the situations, you know, maybe you had in your life. Someone does something not fair, and inside you're just screaming, you're like, I want equality. I want fairness to happen. And instead of fairness coming, things just get better and better for them. It just becomes more and more unfair. And that was exactly Asaph's reaction. That's why in the next slide, verse 13, he says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's saying, what was the point of me trying to be right, trying to be good? It was in vain. It was empty. You guys ever have that? Where you try to do something good for someone? You try to help someone? And what they do is they return evil for your good. Anybody ever have that happen? It's horrible, right? It's painful. You're like, Wait, wait, I just did, I just really went out of my way to do something good for you, and you just turn around and not only did you not do anything, not only did you not thank me for it, but you repaid me evil for good. And that's what how Asaph is feeling. He's saying, What's the point of me washing my hands in innocence, keeping my heart clean? I've only been stricken and rebuked every morning. I've been doing my best. I've been trying all that I could. And in return for all of that, I'm just continuing to struggle. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. It says he was rebuked every morning. Every morning he received some sort of negative consequences of trying to live rightly every day. Some kind of misfortune. misfortune. And at this point, we as people, we can be tempted to think, well, what's the point? of me trying to be on the right path. Here's this right path. I know it's the right path. I've always known that's the right path, but what's the point of me trying to do what's right when all it is is just pain, when all it is is just struggle? It, it's, it just hurts. And these people, they're not walking on the right path, and things just keep getting better and better for them. What's the point of trying to live for God? trying to seek God, trying to live by his word? What's the point of prayer when God's not answering any of them? 
when at the end of the day, everything just goes wrong. You'd think that the evildoers would be punished and those who seek for God, after God, and desire to live rightly, that they would be rewarded. But that was not Asaph's experience. In fact, it was completely backwards. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that oftentimes life does feel like this. It feels backwards. It feels wrong in the core of our being. And it's so tempting maybe in those moments to even want to hop over onto the other side, the side of ease, the side of no struggle, in order to finally catch a break, so to speak. Maybe the thought crosses our mind, maybe this life with God, it's just, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Maybe this whole thing isn't even true. Because why would a good God allow the wicked to prosper and, and, and the righteous to suffer? Why? He's good. He's the God of justice, goodness. All power belongs to him. All wisdom. How is it that he is allowing all of this to go on? Why? 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 Maybe some of us think, God, I serve you so much. Why am I struggling financially? God, I, I love you and I, I pray to you. Why do I have these health problems or problems in my marriage? God, you know I want to do the right thing, but why am I going through the thick of it? Why am I going through the thick of it? I'm just trying to do what's right. And that was where Asaph found himself. At a crossroad. And verse 15 goes on to say, next slide, if I had said this, if I had said I will speak thus, meaning I will join them, I will speak like them, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And this is that first moment of clarity that we see in the psalm for Asaph. And he includes this magic word, if. If. If I would have said that, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Meaning, even in these doubts, church, even in our struggles that we go through, even when we are going through the hardest time of our life, we still have a choice. We still have a choice. We are not the victims of our circumstances. We still have a choice. And we see Asaph didn't speak that way. Because our actions, church, our words that we say as we're going through these situations, they will have an effect on the world. And Asaph recognized that his words and his actions, that they have consequences, that he would have betrayed the believers around him. In a sense, he would have joined the bad side, so to speak. He would have walked away from God and the light. And he would have leaned into his doubts and into his envy and ultimately into sin. Remember, we all have a choice, no matter how bad it might get. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, next slide, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. So he starts to think. He starts to think like, wow, life is so not fair. These wicked people are prospering. I'm trying to do the right thing, and I'm suffering. 
how does that make any sense? And it just seemed to him wearisome. It just it seemed exhausting. It seemed undesirable to even think about it. You know why? Because he knew that if he would think about it more, he probably would have had more doubts. He probably, probably would have gotten even more depressed trying to understand it. We have that, right? Situations where we're just like, I don't even want to think about it because it's just going to make things worse for me. And that's how it was for him. He was afraid of being discouraged more. He assumed there is no answer to all of this. Just kind of got to suck it up and keep going. And verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And this is the key point here, church. Notice that Asaph He only received an answer in the presence of God. He didn't receive an answer running away from God. No, he received an answer when he came to God. He solved his problem coming before God, asking God to help him. He got his answer in the presence of God and church. I know that for most of us, Our first reaction when we are struggling, when we are going through a hard time, our first reaction is to run away from God, isn't it? Our first reaction is to try to do things on our own, to try to solve it. Oh, I got this. I could do this, this, this. I could call this person. I could talk to this person. That's our first reaction, isn't it? To run away from God. Maybe sometimes we even think God is at fault. Why would I come to him to solve my problem? And so instead of bringing it to him as quickly as possible, we choose to suffer alone apart from him. We will never find answers apart from God, church. It's like a cancer patient that gets mad at his doctor for the the side effects of chemo. Well, that hurts. Oh, I'm nauseated. I'm this. I'm that. Yes, but you, you can't get mad at your doctor. You need, yes, the doctor gave you the chemo. Yes, it hurts, but the doctor has the answers. The doctor has your best in mind. Run to him. Talk to him. Ask him. Church, in our struggles, in our confusion, let us not run from God, but let us run to God. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Psalm 62, verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge to us. Run to God. Asaph received an answer from God, and so shall we. I promise you. Verse 17, he says, Then I discerned, go back, verse 17, then I discerned their end. This is another key word here, the word end. You see, this history, right, this world, the course of this world and everything that's happening, right, all relationships, situations, events, everything that's going on, it's all in a state of flux, it's, it's all still going up and down. And the reason things oftentimes do not seem to add up, so to speak, right? How is it that the wicked are prospering, the righteous are suffering? How, how, how? It's because we're not done calculating. The, the math formula, imagine, you know, you write 
a long addition and a long subtraction, right? And you're just bringing the numbers down and you're calculating. We're not done yet. The calculation isn't even over yet. It's still going. The numbers haven't been crunched. It's not over yet. God is not done working. Everything is not yet said and done. And this is why the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. It's foolish. You know, you're watching a sports game. Let's say you're in first quarter or halfway through the game. It's foolish to say, oh, they lost. Now, you understand, things can change very quickly. Things can change very rapidly. It's foolish when someone comes to you and starts telling you something to make a decision before hearing them out completely. It's foolish because they're not done talking. You understand, they might tell you something that's going to completely shift your perspective. And the same exact thing goes for the course of this world. It's still going. It's foolish to make a judgment call to say that the Lord is unjust and that he's doing something wrong before the end. God is not done, church. Only at the end will we be able to accurately assess the flow of history, the flow of each and every one of our lives and the end results of all of that, right? To, to, say God, to tell God, why? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? It's the same thing like, you know, imagine you tell a five-year-old, hey, we're driving to Disneyland. Okay, well, we know Disneyland is south of Sacramento. And then he's, you know, you start driving, you're like, wait, why are you driving north? Why are you driving north, right? You're supposed to go south, right? Why'd you make that turn? We understand that any journey, any path, is rarely a straight line somewhere, right? Sometimes we got to turn left and right and left and straight and right and left, and there's so many turns it'll make your head spin. And by us just constantly saying, wait, why, why, why'd you turn here? Why'd you do this? What we're doing is we're just, we're just showing our own immaturity. Let us wait patiently until the end, as the Word of God says. Let us look to the end. Next slide, verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by, utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Notice this word, moment. He says, in a moment swept away. A moment can change everything in a person's life, can it not? Think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He was sold into slavery, and he starts to prosper. Everything's going great. He's in Potiphar's house. Potiphar trusts him. Everything's going awesome. You think, wow, this is a great recovery. In one moment, one day, Potiphar's wife just lies about him. He loses all of it. And he gets locked up in a prison. He's no longer a slave with privileges, with rights, with trust. He's rotting in some underground cellar. And you think, wow, that's it. His life is over, right? And then again, in a moment, in a moment, in one day, Joseph goes from being in a cellar, in a dark cellar at the bottom rungs of Egyptian society to being second in command after Pharaoh, in one moment. 
Do not underestimate the power of one moment, right? We could be watching a race in the Olympics and a guy could be running first place in, in one moment of um, one misstep and he could trip and guess what? Now he's in last place. One moment can change everything. And for many, there is also a moment prepared. For the wicked who do not trust in God, there is a moment for them that God has prepared. And if you have not trusted in God, there will one day also be a moment for you. And like verse 20 says, like a dream when one awakes. I want you to remember the last time you had a vivid dream, okay? Maybe some of you are like, I don't dream. I haven't dreamed in years, right? But just remember your last vivid dream. And in that dream, there is probably some story going on, right? Usually there's a problem. Something's not working. You know, you're running away. You need to fix something. And in that dream, there's so much background information. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but in my, in my dreams, I have, I'll have uh, like fake memories of things that happened in, other, in that world, right? At other times, and I'll meet this person. Oh, I remember he told me this, even though that never happened either. And it feels so real in that dream world. And you know, in that dream, you can have all the riches you could ever desire. You could have all your wishes. And you could actually be enjoying them, right? Anybody ever flown in their dreams before? Raise your hands, honestly. It's fun, isn't it, right? I, I loved it. I, I, that's not a dream I wanted to wake up from, right? It feels great to fly in your dreams. And I was actually enjoying my dream. Not fake enjoying, actually enjoying. But the moment that we wake up is the moment that entire reality just starts crumbling. The moment we wake up, it's all gone. It's no longer enjoyable, and it will never return. And all that is left is just a memory. And that is the vanity of being happy, quote-unquote, happy, prospering in this world apart from God. That's the vanity. This dream, when one wakes up, it's gone, right? One day, friends, all of us will experience a rude awakening. We all have a moment, and all of us will have to stand before God. As the Word of God says, it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. We all know we will die. But just like right when, we're, when you're in your dream, even if you know you're sleeping, it's hard for you to even imagine what life is like outside your dream, right? You're like... I don't know what you're talking, you mean I'm laying on some bed in some house? No, this is real. This dream is real. And it's the same exact thing with this life right now, church. It feels real, right? The problems we feel, they feel real. The good things, they feel real. It all feels so real. And it is real in a way. But the reality that comes after death is going to be far more real and far more longer lasting than any of us could ever imagine in this reality right now. Even though we can't imagine it, it is still coming. And verse 20 says, you despise them as phantoms. Go back 
you despise them as phantoms. And there's so these two images being used, dreams and phantoms. Phantoms is another word for ghosts, right? Both of them are not real, right? They're not substantial. They, they have, you can't touch them, you can't see them, you can't feel them, you can't interact with them, right? They are of no weight. And what, what Asaph is saying, even though they might be enjoying their life and they have it all, quote unquote, when God rouses himself, when God finally steps in to do something about their life, when their moment comes, and when he makes things right, and he puts everything in its proper spot, the prosperity of the wicked and the wicked themselves will be of no account. They will be, and by they I mean everyone who has not trusted in Christ, will be reduced to nothing, to zero will be like a dream, like a phantom, weightless. Essentially, the life that people enjoy apart from God is just an illusion soon to pass away. And if you are in that illusion and you're enjoying it, just remember, one day you will wake up as if someone pouring cold water all over you and you will have to face the reality that you wake up and you can't escape. You won't be able to fall back asleep. You will have to deal with the God before whom you are standing. And there is no running. And what Asaph is talking about here in these verses 18, 19, and 20, we know that ultimately what he's talking about and what the Spirit is prophesying about is, is the final judgment. And we read that in Scripture, Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them, and I saw the dead, great and small, Standing before the throne and books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Asaph realized that there is a coming judgment of God that will call, come upon this entire world, and it will happen in a moment. And God will balance everything that is wrong. He will set everything Right. He goes on to say in verse 21, he says, when, I was, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You see, now that he realized the truth about the people that he was envious of, that all of this is an illusion, that it's passing away, when he realized that God is not unjust, when he realizes, all of a sudden he begins to realize something about his own self, you see, church, when we don't run towards God, when perhaps we're bitter at God, right, we are like beasts. It's literally the language that the Bible uses. We're ignorant. We're blind. We are without understanding. 
You see, animals are incapable of understanding people the way a person understands another person, right? They're incapable. They, they can't. There's some basic level of understanding, but nothing in a way that other people can understand one another. Our emotions, specifically our bitterness and our anger towards God, what it does is it, it blinds us and it makes us incapable of understanding him and his purposes in our life and in, in this world, right? What we do is we make a fool of our own selves when we choose to hold on to that anger, that bitterness towards God. It's like a teenager who has genuinely convinced himself that his parents hate him because they're setting boundaries around him. They're not letting him do everything that he wants to do. He really believes that. But everyone knows he's a fool. He doesn't see it. And then Asaph goes on to say, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. After he realizes the truth about himself, he begins to understand the truth about his own condition this entire time. I love this word because he says, nevertheless. In other words, even when I was ignorant, even, God, when I was like a beast towards you, just a dumb donkey, you were still there. God, you were there the entire time. You didn't leave me. You didn't abandon me. Nevertheless, I'm, I was continually with you. And I love this because also, nevertheless, what it tells us is that no matter how unfavorable everything seemed to Asaph, I still had something so much better. Church, we have the continual presence of God himself. God is always with us. Yes, the wicked, they might have all the physical blessings of this world for some time, but they do not have the presence of the Almighty God. We have a relationship. Church, we have an open connection, an open door. We have his ear with the Almighty God who has made this world the most high, the one whose worth is so great that if you were to take the worth of all the peoples and nations and companies and, and everything in this whole world, you add it up all together and you put it on a scale to compare, it would be as just dust that doesn't move the scale one bit. Because everything has no weight when compared with the eternal weight of the worth of our God. And that's the God that we are continually with. We are always with him, and from his presence we receive peace and joy and life. And I love because he says there also, you hold my right hand. You hold my right hand. Notice if God is holding our right hand, right, then that means he's using his left to hold our right. We use our right hand for everything, right? Most of us. We use our right hand. In fact, the right hand is a symbol of action. It's a symbol of 
power, right? It's a symbol of ability, of work. And here we have this image of God holding my right hand. And if my right hand is busy, that means I can't do anything. But he's holding it with his left. That means his right hand is free. Meaning he is free to act on our behalf. He is free to work on our behalf. He is free to help us. Whenever I go to the store, right, I hold my little daughter by, with my left. I hold her right hand with my left. That way, in case any emergency arises, my right hand is ready. I'm ready to stop, protect, right, jump into action. She can't do that because I'm holding her right hand. God holds our right hand in order for us to be protected, in order for us to be near him. And also, just as importantly, he holds our right hand so that we depend on him. Church, he holds our right hand. All we have is this useless little hand that's uncoordinated, right? That's all we have. But we have something better. We have the right hand of God who is acting on our behalf. Oh, church, trust in God. Trust in him. God's little pinky is more powerful than all the powers of this world. He is the one who fights for us. He is the one who works for us. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, and we're all trying to build something in this life, aren't we? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it work in vain. Isaiah 64.4, No eye has seen a God besides you who works for those who wait for him. He works for us, not the other way around. We don't work for God. He works for us. Isaiah 46.4, To old age I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Are you anxious about your life? Are you anxious about the future of your life? Well, God promises us that to old age, to the very end, he will carry us. Praise God, amen. Verse 24, next slide. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. You guide me with your counsel, meaning with God we are never truly lost. Even though we might not see the end destination, even though there's a lot of fog, we are not lost. Because with God, there is always, the, we, we have a next step. We have his counsel, meaning his guidance, his advice. We always have a next step with God, even if that next step is wait. Trust in me. Wait. We always have his counsel. We have his guidance. And then he goes on, and he says, and afterward, you will receive me to glory, meaning his counsel is leading us into glory, and he will receive us into that glory. And this is our ultimate and our greatest hope. Because after all of this is said and done, after all the injustice turns into justice, after all the hardships, trials, and storms, our ship 
will arrive onto the peaceful shores of eternity. We will enter into the new Jerusalem, the festal gathering, the place of everlasting joy. We will walk through the gates of the new Jerusalem to be greeted by the celebration of the saints who went before us, knowing that we have arrived. This is it. Knowing that we will never leave. That this glory that I see, that I rejoice in, it will never fade. It will never run out or grow dim, but instead, it will only get brighter, richer, more beautiful with every moment from then on. I recently stumbled across a new word. It's anaomia. I probably mispronounced that. Anomia. Anomia. There you go. Anomia. And what it means is a nostalgia for a time you've never known. It's a nostalgia for a time you've never known, for something you've never experienced. And we all have this, don't we? We all long, we all yearn for some other place, for some time. And sometimes we reach those places, right? And we reach those times only to realize that we are still the same. And that life is still not fully satisfying. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity into man's heart. And on the base of this text, I believe that this is why our whole life, we go about looking for eternity, but we never find it because we're looking for it in a finite place, a finite earth, and we will never find it. But we have a promise from God that he will receive us into glory. And that's what we actually are longing for. And the Old Testament saints, they clung to this hope. He says, you will receive me to glory. That was Asaph's hope. And so should we hope in this. One day we will be in the presence of God, church. One day we will experience the glory of God, the everlasting glory which we all long and yearn to see. And he goes on to say, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The real Christian understands that there is truly nothing here on earth or in heaven, meaning if they even find something new that can truly satisfy me the way that God can. Yeah, family is great. Friends are great. Hobbies are great. Work is great. All these things, they are great. But none of those things can ever truly satisfy me the way God can. And if you're hearing this, friend, and you're, and you're thinking, Peter, that just sounds poetic. I think you're just saying that because that's just the right thing to say. But I know that every person who has come to know Christ, who has loved Christ, they, you know in the depths of your heart that there is nothing that can satisfy you and that in your soul like God can. Everything else is just, it's just a smell. It's just a shadow. But the substance, the actual thing, it belongs to Christ. Only Christ can satisfy us. 
There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is real. And this is the experience of many people. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Even if I lose everything here, he's saying, even if my own flesh, the thing closest to me, the thing I feel most, the most precious thing to me, even if that fails, even if my heart fails, meaning even if I am beat down and depressed and discouraged, God will be my strength when I have no strength. God will keep me going even when there's nothing to keep me going. And like Scripture says about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope. God is my portion forever. Even if I lose all that I have here on earth, even if my own flesh fails, I will not lose that which is most valuable to me, that is God. Church, a question for all of us. Is God our portion? Is God my portion? Is he my most prized possession that I cling to? Or are we still trying to claw things out from this world? Are we still envious of those whose portion is in this life? You know, some people have license plates, and they say happiness is, and then it's like being a grandma, you know, happiness is fishing and all that, you know. And I don't think they're trying to make a theological statement, but if they were, I would say, no, happiness is God. God is happiness, and there is no other. He is our portion. And then he closes with verse 27, 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In the end, those who are far from God will perish, because he is the source of eternal life, and people who choose to live apart from him will one day receive what they have been asking for their entire life, that is to be cut off from the fountain of everlasting life. In fact, God himself will put an end to them, the psalm says. The pleasures and the comforts that they experience will not last long in the grand scheme of things. And that's a warning to all of us. But for us who know God, it is good to be near him. And I know we all know this. I know this echoes into the bottoms of our hearts that it is good. It is good for us to be near God because that is where we find our comfort. That is where we find our strength, our wisdom, our reassurance. We get it here in this life and we get it in, in its full glory there in eternity when we see him face to face. And lastly, as we close, I want to bring this full circle. Asaph felt like he was suffering unjustly, didn't he? He felt like he was righteous and he was doing good things. And despite all his righteous deeds, he still suffered. But in a way, 
Asaph was just a shadow of who Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ was actually righteous. There is no one good but God alone. He was the only one that's truly righteous. He is the one who has never sinned. And in his sufferings, he wasn't ignorant and brutish like a beast towards God. No, he was humble before God. And yet he suffered. And he suffered greatly, church, and he suffered deeply. And he suffered for all of us. He paid for our sins through his suffering. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, how can I be saved? Just have faith in Jesus. Believe in him. Turn from your sins. Follow him. Have him be your Lord and you will follow him into all of eternity. And he will bring you into his presence. And he will bring you into his glory forever. 1 Peter 3.8 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And with God, we will be if we trust in him. Amen? Let's pray, church. Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the fountain of eternal life. I pray that you would be our portion. I pray that if any of us are strained like Asaph, beginning to look side to side, Lord, may we remember the end of that illusion apart from you. And may we remember that it is good to be near you, Lord. It is good to love you, to be close to you. Give us that joy and lead us home into your presence. Jesus, I thank you, and I pray all this in your precious, precious name. Amen.